0: Just a quick note for context, this interview was conducted during Melbourne's sixth lockdown in September 2021.
1: Welcome to The Electric Rodeo, an adult toy megastore podcast about sex, pleasure, relationships and everything in between. I'm your host, Emma Hewitt, a sex educator and sex toy enthusiast. Every episode, I take a deep dive into a fascinating new topic, talk to experts, and answer common sex questions. Because sex is normal, messy, pleasurable, intimidating, and a hell of a lot of fun. Let's take a ride! In the beginning, we were all so innocent, calling it the Rona, baking sourdough, walking the dog five times a day, downloading The Sims. And making a commitment to completing 30 days of yoga with Adrian. Remember that? Remember the good old days? As things continued to get out of control, these activities became a lot less entertaining. And for many of us, so did our sex lives. For those at home with partners, there was the honeymoon phase with all of that extra time together. Then the overexposure phase, where even the sound of our partner's breathing started to piss us off. And then the stress, the worry... And the state of impending doom. All terrific libido killers. Articles came out calling it the virus that killed the world's libido, stating that COVID is toxic to our sexuality. But what about those who lock down without a sexual partner? Our sex drives don't just stop because we can't have sex, right? Local governments recommended the use of glory holes to get your fix and prevent transmission. And our friends at Ending HIV even explained social distancing rules measured in dicks. It's 15 dicks apart for those that are interested. But what about those that are dependent on having sex as their primary form of income, where staying home or keeping 15 dicks distance between themselves and their clients simply isn't an option? What about our sex workers? This is a virus that demands distance, isolation and no physical touch. So of course, the in-person sex work industry was one of the first to shut down and in between lockdowns, one of the first to open back up again. So how did this impact the lives of sex workers and their clients and what sort of safety measures had to be put in place to keep them both safe?
0: Through the the little gaps, the like on-off lockdown gaps back at the brothel has been, if anything, about 30% busier than it was previous to the pandemic, I think, just because dating feels kind of impossible right now. So even people who would usually be like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just get on Tinder kind of thing are not getting those needs met there. So, yeah, if anything, it has increased the demand for it, even though it's not really something that can be done COVID safely.
1: Alana Gray has been a sex worker for nine years and loves her job, but COVID threw a total spanner in the works. But before we get to that, I asked Alana how she got into sex work in the first place.
0: Unsurprisingly, I was called by the siren call of money. I was very keen to do a yoga teacher training course that I knew was going to cost me about 12 grand. And at the time I was in my early twenties, I was working part-time at a cafe and I just went, how am I ever going to be able to save up that much money? And a friend of mine jokingly, jokingly suggested that I become a stripper. And that thought kind of just percolated for a while and percolated for a while. It's like, maybe I could do that. So yeah. And did a little bit of research, not much, but it's very easy to get into the sex industry. You really just call up a club that you want to work at and go, hey, can I come work? And they just they just go, sure, rock up. Like their requirements for entry are very low. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: How have you navigated the height of the COVID lockdowns? Did you need to stop for a while? Were you eligible for the government's Job Seeker Program?
0: So because I primarily do brothel work these days. And the brothels pretty much through all of the lockdowns have been the first thing to shut and the last thing to open. So that was very much taken out of my hands. I really did just have to stop working. And same with private work. It technically became illegal through a lot of those lockdowns. And yeah, a lot of people pivoted to online work. I didn't because yeah, fortunately I was eligible for the JobKeeper as a sole trader. So technically I've got an ABN. I am technically a small business, so I was in a very fortunate position to have all my ducks in a row in regards to the paperwork and be able to do that, but um, yeah, a lot of sex workers absolutely weren't, like anybody who was from overseas or anybody who was doing it on the side didn't have that stuff set up, so yeah, I was very fortunate to be able to get that.
1: And did you find that there was a change in the demand for sex during COVID and the lockdowns? Were your clients still really interested?
0: The demand for private work is still there, even through these lockdowns where it would be illegal for me to work in that you still get messages of clients being like, oh, hey, any chance for a booking kind of thing? And you're like, mate, no. (laughs) Through the the little gaps, the like on-off lockdown gaps back at the brothel has been if anything, about 30% busier than it was previous to the pandemic, I think, just because dating feels kind of impossible right now. So, even people who would usually be like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just get on Tinder kind of thing, are not getting those needs met there. So, yeah, if anything, it has increased the demand for it, even though it's not really something that can be done COVID safely.
1: So given that, is the conversation with clients around COVID the same that you'd have around STIs? How do you ensure that you and your clients are safe?
0: There has already been a huge uptake of the vaccine by sex workers. I'm already double vaccinated. And, yeah, in talking to each other, we're like, it just seems like a good call to try and screen in the same kind of way, asking people to have vaccinations. The brothel that I work at is already saying that they're going to ask people to show proof of vaccination to attend because yeah, other than that, you can't necessarily do that much. You could ask clients, you know, do you have any symptoms? Have you been in contact with anybody and, and do those questions, but they could just lie. And there's no condom, unfortunately, for COVID. So we just have to do all that we can to protect ourselves, namely with vaccination and keeping an eye out for our own symptoms and getting tested and stuff like that, because there's no way of enforcing it for clients. I do hope that people do the right thing and tell the truth, but
1: sometimes they don't. And what about the growth in the number of people becoming sex workers as a way to, I guess, offset that financial loss during the pandemic? Do you think that with that increased demand, there's actually a wider pool of people doing this kind of work?
0: There is definitely more people doing it because, yes, people have lost jobs. And like I said before, it's got a very low barrier to entry. Talking to some of the older women in the industry, the same thing happened in the global financial crisis in 2007. Like the amount of people in the industry just skyrocketed. So yeah, it's good that there is an increased demand. And as the work becomes less stigmatized and people feel less weird about doing it for whatever reason, you get more people yeah, being like, oh, this is a thing I can do.
1: What is it that you love about sex work?
0: Some of the things that I love about it are also the things that make it really hard Because the best thing about it is the flexibility, is the being your own boss, setting your own hours, all that control and stuff like that. But the flip side of that coin is that I'm my own boss, so I don't get sick leave, I don't get super (laughs) or annual leave or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, if I decide not to go to work, the only person who is negatively impacted by that is me, which can be great, but you've got to be really self-motivated. And the other thing that I really, really love about it, which will sound kind of naff, is that I get to meet so many people outside of my circle. Like, I think we have a tendency to be quite stagnant in our friends, family, workmates kind of thing. After a while, those circles get set and you don't meet and connect with people outside of it. But yeah, through this job, I... Again, this sounds so cheesy. Uh, it just keeps me in touch with this like diversity of human spirit. There's just like so many different people out there and I get to meet them and spend time with them that I might not ever get to do that otherwise.
1: Yeah, I love that answer. That's so nice. <laughs> well, I know the sex work industry has finally become regulated in Victoria. How do you feel about that and what does it mean for you?
0: There's a couple of things that means for me. I am looking forward to there being more workers' rights within the industry, as I said before, about not getting sick leave and super and things like that. If you're a private worker, obviously you're your own boss and you're in charge of that. But for people who work at brothels, we're not technically employed there and so they have no obligations to you as an employer. They can fire you. They can just send you a text message and say, don't come in anymore. You don't get paid a wage for being there they try and set your schedule and stuff like that, even though technically, because we're not employed, they're not allowed to do stuff like that. So bringing it more in line with other jobs where there is actually an employee-employer relationship within brothels will hopefully be really exciting. Get some, it sounds very, it's very dry, get some worker protections in the brothels is honestly the thing I'm most excited about. <laughs> and there's a couple of really restrictive rules in Victoria about stuff like you're not allowed to have an in-call space. So you can't see clients out of your home or hire a hotel room and see clients. You can't be in control of your in-call space, which is such a dumb law. And plenty of people do it because it is the best way to work because you are in control of the space. But yeah, technically all those people doing that are working illegally. And it would be nice for that threat of policing and fines to no longer be hanging over your head when you're just working in the way that makes most sense.
1: Absolutely fair enough and a long overdue change in the law. Tell me what are some of the myths and misconceptions around the industry that you'd like to correct for people?
0: It's such a big one isn't it? I think the first one that always springs to mind when I get this question is the misconception that we're really really well paid and that we're all super rich. The money is good, but the money is incredibly inconsistent and that makes budgeting kind of difficult. And also, yeah, if you can't work, you don't make money. So it's very much based on your health and if you get sick. If you get a cold sore, you know, I've had cold sores make me lose two weeks' worth of income and you've just got to have the financial backing to be able to ride that through if you are only doing sex work and not doing any other job. So yeah we're not all incredibly well paid and even if you know you see a sex worker and you look at her ads and you go, oh she's charging $800 dollars an hour she must be rolling in it. she has spent so much money on photo shoots on advertising on lingerie if she's charging that much she's probably also spending a lot of money on like appearance on her hair on her nails, on her injectables and stuff like that and she's also spending hours and hours in negotiations with clients trying to get those $800 an hour bookings. It's not as clear cut as it seems. You go, oh, I would love to get paid $800 an hour. But there's a lot more work that goes into it. One of the other big misconceptions about the industry, people have a very narrow idea of the kind of person that does sex work and the kind of look that they have. You know, you think of a sex worker and you think of a thin, young, white woman – who's very stereotypically attractive. But as soon as I walked into my first strip club, I was like, oh, it's not like that at all. You get such a diversity of bodies, of races, of ages, and there's clients for everybody. So yeah, it absolutely doesn't come down to this really conventional idea of attraction. It's much, much broader and much more diverse than that. And the other one is there's this idea that once you introduce money into the equation, the sex worker isn't really consenting. People say, oh, it's coercive. You can't really consent to sex if there's money involved. But we consent to do things all the time that we're not necessarily super enthusiastic about if you're getting paid to do them. Like Nobody turns up to their job at a cafe to pull coffees and serve sandwiches just because they're really into it. So... Yeah, it is a different kind of consent than between you and a partner when there's no money involved, but it is still active, informed consent.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the whole myth of no one chooses to do sex work, mm. which is obviously not true at all. Totally. So am I right that you have a partner, Alana?
0: I'm in an interesting position because I am non-monogamous, I'm polyamorous, so I have a couple of partners.
1: Ah, Right which
0: makes things a little bit, well, less and more complicated for me. But yes, because I don't have to demand that my partner not sleep with anybody else. It kind of simplifies things. But I do know partners who have monogamous boyfriends and girlfriends, and that is a thing that sex workers deserve as well as anybody else because, yeah, it's just a job.
1: And do you ever find it difficult to disconnect from clients, particularly if there's like a regular one that you see quite frequently? I
0: am lucky, if that's the word for it, in that even my most beloved clients, and there's a couple of them who I'm very genuinely fond of, I would not be in a romantic or sexual relationship with them outside of work. Like, there's just some fundamental incompatibility there that just means that I could never date them. So it's always easy to just kind of know that there is a boundary around the relationship maybe for them, it's a little bit harder. Maybe they can't always necessarily tell. I've definitely had clients try the like, maybe we should just catch up outside of this. And you have to very gently be like, honey, I'm not doing it for free. I'm not like, you're so nice and you're so lovely and I genuinely enjoy the sex, but I'm not doing it for free. And you have to manage their feelings carefully to keep them as a regular, but also to keep those boundaries up where they know that the money changing hands is an essential part of this relationship.
1: And what about the kind of reverse of that? What if you have a client that you're really not attracted to at all? How do you get yourself in the mood for that?
0: I mean, lube is a wonderful thing. (laughs) You don't really need to be in the mood as such. And because I've done it hundreds of times. There is just like a nice routine that you can slip into. And again, the sex I would have at work is very different to the sex I would have in my personal life in that it's not really about me. It's about solving the puzzle of what would give this person a really nice time. And like any sense of job satisfaction, it is nice and affirming and, yes, satisfying when you go, I did give that person a nice experience. So yeah, it's just solving that nice little puzzle and even if someone really gets on your nerves, you can still get through it, like navigating any awkward work-client relationship. You just be a professional. It's just that me looking like a professional looks a little bit different to other people being professional.
1: (laughs) You're a star. I don't think I could... uh hive have my emotions that, that, well,
0: I'm really terrible. Well, it's something you practice. You definitely practice. And sometimes you fail at it and you get to the end of the booking and you go, neither of us had a good time and I'm never going to see this client again. And that's okay. That happens. It's like if you buy an ice cream, you're not guaranteed to enjoy the flavor.
1: <laughs> that's a really beautiful analogy. <laughs> um, so... Alana, you mentioned earlier that in part due to COVID, a lot of people have taken their sex work online. Can you talk a bit more about this acceleration and the perception of online sex work?
0: There's definitely been a huge shift to online sex work, not just because of, yeah, brothels closing and things like that, but also, yeah, because as we said before, people losing their jobs, being like, oh, I need to make a little bit more money. The unfortunate thing is, is for a lot of people, they perceive the porn that they get online and the erotic content that they get online to be something that they should be able to access for free. Because yeah, you can hit a whole bunch of websites and get a whole bunch of re-uploaded stolen porn for free. So yeah, the labor of sex workers who put stuff online is seriously devalued. Like people just don't feel like they should pay for it. It's a lot harder to convince people to pay for it because yeah, you can access porn online for free. You can't access a live in-person sex worker for free unless you get lucky on Tinder. So there's lots more online sex work and I am not currently doing it, but I wish all of the people who are the best because yeah, it's fucking brutal. (laughs)
1: So as we've talked about already, there's a lot of misconceptions about sex work, but like any job, of course, there are systems and processes that facilitate that transaction. So if you wouldn't mind, can you take us into the experience? So from where a client enters the brothel, whether you get a call to go meet someone, how do you discuss kind of your limits, what you will and won't do? When does payment happen? Um, Yeah, just kind of take us through what goes on. So in
0: brothel work, a lot of your clients are just walk-ins. They're just people who've gone, oh, a brothel, and they've wandered in off the street. And a lot of them have little intro rooms, which is just this room that's like 1.5 by 1.5 metres with an armchair in it. And all the girls, the workers who are on shift, will go in one by one and spend, God, probably 90 seconds or less talking to this person, of being like, this is what I do, is there anything in particular you're looking for kind of thing. And in that moment I usually will say specific services so that people know, you know, it's like I do kissing, deep throat, come on body, you can touch, you can go down on me kind of thing and then I'll ask them if there's anything specific they want. The vast majority of people say, oh, I'm just looking for a good time, which is useless information, gives me nothing. Um, <laughs> but often they're feeling a bit vulnerable and they don't know how to express their desires. And then that client will just tell the receptionist which one of the workers that they want to stay with. When you kind of pick that client up then from the intro room and go to one of the work rooms, which is like just a nice bedroom that also has a shower. You'll usually do a bit more talking with them, trying to get a better idea of what they're into before, as you kind of put them in the shower, do a health check, stuff like that. Money always gets paid up front, gets up my nose horribly in movies when sex workers don't get paid up front because it's just not a thing. You absolutely pay before the service. But yeah, it's a lot of the time not as much negotiating as I would like there to be because a lot of the time clients are bad at expressing what they want. And a huge part of my job is reading their signals and their body language and Me kind of going through the motions of offering things. It's like, okay, does this person like kissing? No, they're not that into that. You know, how do they feel when I touch them there, when I do this? Because half the time they're here seeing me because they're not very experienced. So I got to do a lot of mind reading, which is unfortunate. Private work, you get to have like either text message or telephone conversations with people where you can narrow it down a bit more before you see those people which can make my life easier, especially because I just have like a cut and paste list of these are all the things that I do. If you want, you know, fantasy, kink, stuff like that, those things are extra. You can be really, really specific in those negotiations. In the brothel, it's often just taking it as it comes.
1: And are there certain things that you get asked to do frequently that are just no goes for you?
0: So many clients come into brothels and ask for anal which is fine. Like it's a perfectly serviceable sex act, but it's also a sex act that for the recipient partner requires a little bit of prep. You know, you need to be clean. You need to have worked on that area and be ready to do it. Like most workers doing their eight hour shifts at the brothel are not ready to do anal at a drop of the hat. Some of them are, and some of us just charge exorbitant amounts of money for it. Because, yeah, it's, it's a really common fantasy. It's in every single porn. Lots of people want it. But, yeah, it is a thing that requires prep. So, yeah, I just say no because it's just not worth it really.
1: Yeah, fair enough. It's not an easy one to prep for. I have to write about that all the time. <laughs> now, if you were to meet a client out and about in public, how do you handle that situation?
0: I have a superpower – And my superpower is that my work look is hugely different to my real life look. Between the wig and the makeup and the heels, unless somebody was incredibly perceptive about my tattoos, and I only have got a couple, they would not recognize me, which is one of the reasons I do it that way. Even when I had sort of more feminine hair, I still wore a different color wig because I enjoyed that level of anonymity that it gave me. Early on, I think, when I was working with my natural hair, I saw a, a client in public who I quite was thought was pretty cool. And I gave him, like, a nod, you know, a like, I recognize you nod. And he looked mortified and sprinted out of the shop as fast as he could. So mostly that problem just dealt with itself. <laughs> They're like spiders. They are way more afraid of us than we are of them sometimes. <laughs>
1: Now, safety is obviously a real concern for sex workers, but how prevalent is violence and how do you keep yourself safe?
0: That probably falls under the misconceptions one is that it is a very dangerous or violent industry. God knows when I came out to my family, that was the first thing that they asked me. They were like, oh my God, are you safe? Like, isn't it dangerous? It's like, no, not really, especially not doing brothel work. Clients tend to be on pretty good behaviour when they're coming into an establishment and if they're kind of rowdy and giving off bad vibes as soon as they walk in the door. Receptionist is just like, no, piss off. There's a a few layers of community protection in brothels as well. And then if you're in the room with somebody and they are, again, it's an instinct thing. A lot of the time you can tell somebody is more likely to be violent before any violence actually happens. So it's about carefully managing that person and carefully doing your conflict management stuff of making sure you don't poke their buttons and you just get through it. And if they are violent, then, again, working in brothels, you are empowered to just hit the bricks, just walk out of the room and say to the receptionist, hey, that dude's a dick, kick him out. A couple of times in, like, four or five years, we've had to call the cops on somebody who was drunk or rowdy or whatever. But usually in brothels, people behave themselves, and the worst you'll get is just that they pass out and it's hard to wake them up to get rid of them. Working privately, I tend to always work with someone else. If we're going to get an in-call space, we'll get two bedrooms and work together. And you just use your instincts. You talk to people before you see them. As a community, we talk to each other. If there are, you know, some bad eggs floating around, stealing money, being violent or whatever, we share that information with one another. People tend to think of sex workers as islands, but it's actually a very strongly interconnected community and we look out for each other. If you're working alone, a lot of the time you'll have a safety call. You know, you'll just, hey, I'm off seeing this client this time. I'll be out at this time, let you know. Yeah, we look out for each other.
1: So do you have quite a few friends that work in the sex industry too? I've been at this about eight
0: years. So most of my friends are either sex workers, ex-sex workers, or people who I share other hobbies with because, yeah, they're they're my workmates. And that's the other really nice thing about working in brothels is that you spend a lot of time out the back waiting for clients and getting to know each other, having cups of tea, ordering takeout, like slumber party vibes in the back room. (laughs) So, yeah, most of my friends are sex workers at this point in my life.
1: So is sex work a job that you see yourself doing long-term or is there something else that you want to pursue eventually?
0: I have recently done some study to give myself a few more employment options, not because I want out of sex work, but because I would like options for when I need to take a break. It is the kind of industry where you get burnt out and I can feel it when it happens. I start feeling really cranky with clients, having this bad energy where, you know, I'm trying to sell myself and I'm like, come on, I know the script, like be flirty, give off the energy that you want to have sex with this person. And I just can't access that. And when that happens, it's really nice to be able to just go, you know what? I'm taking a couple of months off. So yeah, I did some study to give myself some other employment options so that I could do that. But I honestly think it will be a part of my life for a long time. I've met a lot of older workers in the industry in their forties, fifties, sixties, still doing it in a different way a lot of the time, but it's not something that you age out of. It's not like you hit an unfuckable age and you can't sell it anymore. There's kind of a market for every age, every body type, every gender. So it's probably something I will keep coming back to because of that flexibility and freedom and just fun.
1: Every age is a fuckable age.
0: (laughs) Right? MILFs are having a real resurgence yeah. right now. I don't know what's going on. Is it the internet culture is just being powered by millennials now and we're all like, mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. Actually, yeah. <laughs> women over 40 and 50 are hot. Oh, my God. <laughs> awesome.
1: Alana, thank you so much for being on the Electric Rodeo and giving us an insight into your world. It's really fascinating to hear about. Oh, you are
0: totally welcome. Talking about myself is one of my favourite hobbies.
1: You've been listening to the Electric Rodeo Podcast for Adult Toy Megastore, produced by Sound Cartel. Follow Electric Rodeo free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more sex and relationships explained, follow at Electric Rodeo Podcast on Instagram.